Hello and welcome to series two of The Joy of Writing. I'm your host, Mark Carew. In this series, I will be talking to authors about the fun, the satisfaction, the joy they get from their writing, whether it's prose fiction, narrative non-fiction or poetry. In this episode, I'm talking with Edward Parnell, author of Ghostland, In Search of a Haunted Country. We learn how Ed enjoyed digging into the places that inspired his favourite writers and also discuss the nature and purpose of ghosts. Ghostland, In Search of a Haunted Country, was published last year by William Collins, which is an imprint of HarperCollins. Um, I found it an intensely fascinating read because it shows your love of ghosts and uh, what, they, what they mean to you. Um, you write in the book that you've been fascinated with ghosts since the age of four. So I suppose my first question is, uh, why such an interest at an early age? Yeah, I'm I'm not... Int- I kind of frame it in the book that one of my first memories is, is I think, when I was about four. And we went on this, on a summer holiday to Wales. And I think we were visiting carnarvon castle and it was a kind of bit of family folklore that i then asked the guide are there any ghosts and that was kind of that was the thing i was big into Mm. um i i was definitely i I had like these cut out um cardboard ghosts that glowed in the dark that were on my bedroom wall when i was really little as well i i I was really into ghosts i think slightly before that i was into dinosaurs so i guess probably like lots of young boys i i just like that kind of weird stuff i don't know necessarily what it was about them a bit later on when i was a little bit older probably like seven or eight i was in the the local church choir this big old 13th century church so i guess i was then after on a Sunday evening in the winter when we'd finished we'd all kind of chase around the graveyard in the dark and stuff <laughs> so I was definitely I was definitely a bit of a weird kid and into into all that stuff but I was into sort of nature as well and when I was a little bit older and bird watching so kind of wandering around on my own a lot so right yeah I'm surprised I wasn't a kind of emo or a goth actually but that, that kind of <laughs> I probably just missed out on that I think and and to write Ghostland, of course, you did a lot of field work. You travelled to the places that um, where, where the stories were set, the stories that interested you, and you did a lot of research, which I'm sure amounted to pages and pages of of notes, which get condensed down to to you know much less. Um, what, how did how did you find that research? How how did you enjoy the travel and and the field work? I did. I think that was one of my favorite parts of of writing the book really um so lots of the places i visited really i wanted to get a sense of some of the some of the authors so it's not really a book about it's not a book that's about kind of haunted britain and you know this is where the headless lady of wherever was seen it's not that kind of book it's i'm trying to kind of as well as digging into my own sort of family history and my own kind of slightly haunted past i'm also sort of digging into the places that inspired some of my kind of favourite writers of, yeah. of in the eerie. So people like M.R. James, Arthur Macken, William Hope Hodgson, lots of lots of figures like that, as well as lots of kind of weird old film and TV adaptations. So those were the kind of some of the places I went to, places that might have inspired a certain story, or or where one of those writers might have lived for a while, or where where a, a film was shot so that kind of struck me as a good way of trying to kind of get a sense of what might have inspired the 
the, the people who'd gone before yes. me. Yes. Yes. So you, I mean, you write of places which um, seem sinister and, and harbour a presence, if you like. Um, I think Cornwall is number well. It's high up the list of, of, of sort of slightly spooky settings. Did you find that when you when you went to a place which was has a reputation of being a little bit spooky, as, we, as we'll say? Generally, I, mean, I don't think I, I I did. In the, I mean, it's it's funny at my book launch, my editor described me as the least spooky person that he knows. Which <laughs> I thought was really funny. Um, I guess I'm. I don't think I'm, and I'm setting myself for a big fall here, but I don't think I'm that easily freaked out by things. Yeah. So actually, I'm kind of, I guess I'm quite used to sort of wandering around a wood, bird watching on my own or something. And definitely, you can get a bit freaked out, just that whole Blair Witch thing. Mm. But say with Cornwall, I mean, that had a lot of, that those landscapes at the very far west tip of Cornwall had a lot of very personal resonances, which was another... Yeah. reason for going there as well as some of their links with fiction so um e.f benson who's another edwardian or victorian born writer um he he wrote he lived down there he was the son of the bishop of truro who was then the later the archbishop of canterbury so some of his really good ghost stories are set right down in that part of the world but then there's lots of other things people like susan cooper the children's writer yeah. um, some of the dark is rising books they're set down there that lots of it is definitely that that end of the world um bit of cornwall that land's end peninsula has got a a real kind of brooding quality and then the the kind of the weather just comes in and suddenly like around there's a little place called zena which has connections with dh lawrence and, and various other people and that's um that's kind of perched on the cliffs kind of in the moors at the very kind of tip mm. of the hand and the weather changes really quickly and you can just kind of it's definitely got something about it um but i guess i didn't i suppose i, I wasn't necessarily going thinking i'd i'd see ghosts i, I didn't think that at all but you know yeah. there for instance there's a there's these lots of ancient kind of um standing stones and things and there's legends of cornish piskies like right. piskies who kind of are meant to kind of hang around those and things and you, you can definitely kind of yeah you can let your imagination run wild and kind of sense there's something about that landscape and lots of the other places i went have definitely got a kind of majestic quality that you can see why inspired kind of awe and you know maybe in the right conditions a bit of dread in people too right i mean i mean it's, there's a certain like you say landscape slightly lonely bleak desolate maybe a coastline as yeah. well um, you know, you, you wouldn't find it in a, uh, perhaps, you know, I, I don't know, a modern town centre or something. It doesn't... You, you might, I guess you might do, and maybe that's more what, you know, I can think that probably more contemporary writers, mm. certainly when you look at some contemporary films, that they've got a more kind of urban setting, and I suppose you've got that whole kind of, kind of alienation thing, and so I, I think it's probably what, what you bring to it. I mean, I quite a lot of my books talking about the the fens of Lincolnshire, right. Cambridgeshire yep. and Suffolk, which are these just endless, big, flat farming landscapes, which are as flat as anything with big skies. I know that lots of people find find that a really disconcerting thing, and I suspect that's people who aren't really used to that landscape. Um, I, I grew up there, so to me, yeah. it's kind of 
fairly commonplace. I mean, it might inspire all sorts of other emotions in me because I'm kind of associating it with my youth. But mm-hmm. actually, to me, probably, I don't know, something like a kind of a mountainous landscape might kind of in, might inspire a bit more kind of fear and dread, probably because I've got a bit of a fear of heights. But oh, you know, that, that might kind of, because I'm not used to it as well, I think, and it's not something I see unless I'm traveling on holiday or something. Yeah. So I think that the kind of when you're away from your comfort zones and the familiar, that landscape can kind of take on a bit more of a kind of sinister overtone because I suppose you're just not you're not used to it. You know, which yeah. is people so, who aren't used to walking around a wood on their own suddenly put them in that situation and they'll find it creepy. Right. So it's, it's the unknown, isn't it? It's yeah. what might happen. I haven't been to this place before and maybe something funny will happen. Um, I agree with you about big skies. I, I grew up on the um, Essex-Suffolk border. I loved the big skies, missed them greatly. Um, as for settings, haunted houses yeah. uh, are their own sub-genre. Um, how, did you, how, how did the houses that you visited, and you visited some famous ones, how did they sort of match up to your expectation and, and the, the setting in the book? I think one of the, the best examples was um, I visited Hemingford Grey Manor, which is uh, near Huntington, not very far from Cambridge. So yes. this, was, this was the home of the children's author Lucy Boston, who wrote the Children of Green Notebooks, which was something that like lots of the lots of the kind of classic texts that I talk about in the in Ghostland, I kind of came to it through the TV adaptation. And there was yeah. a there was a mid nineteen eighties BBC children's TV adaptation of the Children of Green Mo. And I think I was probably a little bit too old to be watching it, but um, I, I did anyway because it had kind of spooky stuff, so it kind of appealed to me. Um, so I'd always really wanted to even before I was actually I think I may have even visited it just before I started writing Ghostland and had the idea for it and then I incorporated my kind of yeah. notes from that visit but I suppose I just wanted to go and see what it was like because it, it's such an icon it's a very old building it's reputedly yeah. one of the oldest inhabited houses, houses yeah, yeah. In, in Britain so I wanted to see it and it because it features almost like a character in those green notebooks I kind of was hoping it would trigger memories of me seeing the, not it wasn't shot there actually adaptation, but I'd read the book as well, so I was hoping I'd, I'd, I'd get something of that from it. Um, on, on the particular day I went, I was shown round by um, Lucy's daughter-in-law, who now um, owns the house and looks yes. after it, and, and we'll, we'll show people round. And there's events there. Um, but she was taking me round, and we'd just gone up into the attic, which in the Green Notebooks is a is a really key location because on the when Tolly, the young protagonist, first arrives in the middle of this kind of biblical flood, and he's he's yeah. meeting his his aged relative for the first time. He's taken up, shown this attic bedroom that he's gonna that's going to be his room. There's this big rocking horse in there, which is there in the room, the model yes. for that. Yep. So that's kind of quite magical. I'm, I'm being shown um, the little sort of carved wooden mouse that becomes his kind of little totemic kind of symbol that he kind of really loves during the book. Um, being shown all of this, the chest that's in there. And then this book flies out of the bookcase, or at least in my imagination it does, it's a few years ago now, um, and kind of must like come a couple of feet out of this bookcase onto the, the bare wooden floors. And I'm going to, well, 
what's that? And she's like, oh, these things. She just sort of casually goes and picks it up. <laughs> these things happen sometimes. And a little dog who's come up the stairs with us goes across and sniffs it. And, oh, yeah, well, that, that's happened again. But it, it was definitely a little bit disconcerting. It wasn't. I wasn't scared by it. I was just intrigued by it. Um, I then subsequently read um lucy boston's autobiography and she just she's talking a lot in that about these like poltergeistic happenings that would just be in the house and you just get used to them and indeed her daughter-in-law when i was talking to her later was saying that yeah this sort of stuff you know that's people sort of seem to notice it and didn't seem to you know that it didn't seem an unusual occurrence so right make of that what you will but it was it was definitely added a bit of color that i didn't expect oh definitely i mean i, I visited um Henry for gray manor as well with, with a book group and um we we were shown around and uh we were also shown uh, i think as you were the um patchwork quilts that yeah. Lucy boston is actually extremely famous for yeah um and yes in the attic room was it was that was nice to see the place because it did match uh the you know the book and and the adaptation, and I, I don't remember a book flying out, but there was a story about poltergeists and how people could not could not bear to come up to the room, yeah, um, and and strange things going on. Um, I thought it was, you know, it's very very interesting. I mean, I went back actually to um, because when I when I first went, I didn't have my camera, I didn't take any photos, and I wanted some then when I when I was actually writing on the book later on. So towards the end of when I was getting, when I was editing it, I went back and had a sort of probably an hour on my own in that room taking pictures, uh-huh. some of which appear in the book. But I had a good examination of those bookcases, and they're really solid and deep. And <laughs> you know, I, I was thinking, there's no way a book just kind of tottered out of these. Yeah, so, there's no spring-loaded traps. I don't think so. No, yeah. um, I have no explanation for it though. I mean, I, I like postulate in the book that you know maybe maybe our footsteps on the floorboards kind of you know made something come loose who knows but it was it was definitely interesting i'd have i'd have loved to have replicated it but it wasn't to be. And, and you know the the you were particularly freaked by it um but i'm um, others others would be and uh, also you know there were, there were people i know who um would really not read a ghost story yeah it was based on the the premise that or the principle that if you read something like that, you actually would make it happen. You kind of let the that world, as it were, now in to this world. Yeah. You absolutely refuse to do that. Which well, maybe that's where I've gone wrong. But <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's it's fascinating. Um, another really powerful um, scene came from a very famous story. Um, oh, whistle, and I'll come to you by M. R. James. Yeah. Who seems to stand at the? Well, he's certainly on on the. Um, is he the top or maybe is of, of the authors you have, along with Arthur Mackin and, and there are others as you've mentioned. But uh, you, you mentioned a particular scene where um, the um, in a bedroom and yeah. it's a simple idea, just of uh, a sort of uh, embodied. Uh, set of sheets or sheets rising up as if it was a person yeah um i think that's amazing it, you know we often see and i wondered if your um ghosts as a as a child were little cardboard fluorescent or whatever they were cutouts of sheet-like figures um yeah they were they were a bit casper the friendly ghost i think right casper the friendly ghost but they were I mean, they were quite comical they're quite friendly looking little 
yeah. faces. They weren't kind of these weren't terrifying things, but they did kind of have a a, a glowing outline. You know, yeah. when you turned your bedroom light off, that was there on the wall. But I, they were actually quite comforting. I I loved all of that stuff and like the Osborne book of the supernatural and yes. things like this. And then that kind of I guess got me into sort of fantasy literature and later sort of science fiction but I always kind of like the, the weird and the unusual and then obviously I suppose like lots of lots of kids you know when I was a bit older I kind of moved away from that into kind of more serious literature when I was I don't know doing my A-levels and things yeah. at, at university but I always kind of I, I definitely kind of had still held an interest for all this stuff and you know maybe even like things like the the X-Files kind of coming on our screens that that was a, a big moment I kind of loved that and that probably yeah. I wouldn't say it rekindled because I think I'd, I'd probably moved on to really liking horror films and things by that age but you know that stuff kind of probably got me back into it and then I, I found a lot of these kind of old authors like M.R. James who I write about yes. Ghostland and, and it's kind of lots of the figures I talk about are really these kind of slightly haunted kind of figures themselves who are from that kind of late Victorian, Edwardian era, um, you know, people like James and Macken and yeah, Hope Hodgson I've talked about, but lots of others as well. Um, that's kind of, I guess that was like the era I kind of like, because I, I like also reading them, that there's that historical, you know, they, they're far enough removed that there's there's something kind of atmospheric about them, maybe makes it easier to read them now and kind of be kind of a little bit chilled by them, I think. Right. I mean, you're right, they were all of a particular era. And I also noticed that uh, Mackin, M.R. Jones and, and, and Hodgson, they were all sons of Anglican clergymen. Yes. Uh, which I, I can put my hand up to and join that club as well, although yeah. I don't know any ghost stories. Although, absolutely, the first thing I ever wrote was set in my dad's church where I tried to write a ghost story about something creeping around the churchyard, which then broke into the, the church. Um, uh, yeah, but it's, it's uh, adolescent stuff. Um, it's very interesting what you say about Casper the friendly ghost, because ghosts seem to have so many uses, and I think people, um, you know, we put them to so many uses. You, you know, you give some really fascinating examples of um, uh, ghosts, which are sort of um, rather... Um, you know, beneficial to us, uh, and then there are the ghosts that will come along and save us, as in the you know the story of the Bowman, yeah. for example. You know, Britain will be protected by a company or battalion or whatever of archers when the need comes. Um, that type of thing, and I, I, I wonder if we just mould ghosts to to what we need, and they they are actually on our side. And I mean, what do you think about that? Um, I certainly think that they're. I would kind of more be of the view that, yeah, I guess ghosts probably are in the eye of the beholder or the the, the non-beholder, as you don't often see them. But, yeah, I, I think they're how we kind of... I, I'm, I'm sure you're right in that a lot of it is what we bring to it. I mean, it's a little bit like the thing I was saying earlier about finding a particular landscape spooky. Yes. Um, yeah, because of you're not familiar with it, or or because it has you know certain connotations. Mm. Um, you know, I suspect the same is true of of other locations and buildings as well. That you know, if you've got if a if a house has a if you know a place has has 
a certain thing has happened there, it will cloud your judgment of it, or you yeah. might then have perceptions of you know if you know oh, there's been a murder in this house, you know it will it will allow your imagination to kind of run a bit wild, I think, yeah. and kind of you can start looking for something, can't you? So, you know, I'm sure there's lots of that goes on, really. Definitely. I mean, there's a nice quote from Stephen King uh, from a book. Is it Dance Macabre? Yeah, which is a really interesting book he wrote kind of on the nature of ghost stories mm -hmm. and an investigation of those and on kind of his writing process as well. Um, but yeah, it's a really good survey of all those kind of works. He, he said that ghost stories or maybe ghosts are for the living. Um, you know, there's sort of a, this idea that there are, are friends or they do, you know, they are beneficial. Um, even though some of them are deliberately, some stories are deliberately written to thrill and shock and scare the living daylights out of you. Um, I, I thought it was uh, fascinating, you know, just on the nature of ghosts. And uh, and you have a nice quote from M.R. James when he asked himself the question, um, do I believe in ghosts? To which, which he answered, well, I'll consider the evidence and accept it if it satisfies me. <laughs> Yeah, he he was being kind of his his usual self with that. I suspect. I think he's hedging his bets there. I suspect he probably did believe in them. Would yeah. be my my guess from all I've read about him. Um, but in terms of, I think with ghost stories, I mean, at their kind of heart, and lots of other kind of weird fiction, but at its heart is kind of mortality and death, really. So, mm -hmm. you know, in, yeah. in some way, they're they're many of them are an exploration of those kind of big themes, life and death, particularly the death side of it. So, mm. um, you know, that's, that's, I think, probably one of their uses, I, I guess. It's a way of exploring those kind of themes and coming to terms with kind of loss and grief and things to, to a point. So I'm, I'm sure there's, you know, there's, there's a whole slew of kind of um, Freudian kind of stuff going on in, in there yeah, as well, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean... Fascinating book. I mean, uh, it's it's opened the door to so many interesting writers, and I, I really want to get hold of some of these uh, these stories now to see to see actually. I mean, just for entertainment value, but also see how they do it because I think yeah. writing a ghost story um, is not an easy thing at all. You could easily fall into pastiche or just make it unintentionally hilarious or awful. Yeah, I, mean, I, I I would love to be able to write them, and I I'm kind of quite wary of it. Maybe I'll have a proper go one day. But I I always think, I mean, actually, I think this with kind of short story, good short stories generally, that there's a weird alchemy as to what makes them good. And yeah, ghost stories as a kind of subset of that, I think, have their their own other micro rules. And right. yeah, I, I'm not entirely sure how the good people who manage it, people like James and like more recently someone like Robert Aikman, whose stories are a bit a bit more kind of psychological than mm. James, along with somebody like Walter de la Mare, who um, yeah, is another good, um, one of my favourite writers of that kind of odder, sort of more ambiguous ghost story. But reading them it's you kind of you're trying as a writer to think how would i go about doing this and reading them it's it's really hard you just think they just seamlessly manage it i think yeah and it's, absolutely it's really that, hard to, to decode that magic i think yeah 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 well you know they don't put a foot wrong and suddenly you're you're a little bit looking around and uh, i think as you were saying uh, there was one story um you know even you were nervous when you turned out the light 
at night you know i mean how do you do that how do you freak someone out just slightly like that you know yeah. perfectly sane rational person yeah well that actually like that was probably that i i remember because i was re i read a lot of ghost stories and and watched a lot of old horror films and spooky stuff and, and weird old kind of generally weird books and folklore and things whilst mm -hmm. i was doing this so I, was, I was absolutely immersed in it but i do remember that the one the one reading experience, and I can almost kind of picture that night reading it, um, was uh, Shirley Jackson, an American writer's uh, novel, The Haunting of Hill House, which has right, yes. been made into a Netflix adaptation, which I've not yet seen. Um, but the novel is, yeah, I just reading that, and I think I was, in, I was in the house on my own that night reading it, and there were just kind of... In, in the book there's all these kind of horrific kind of banging on the door and the wall and things and I was just sort of reading it thinking yeah actually this is actually quite frightening and it was that's unusual for me at this point yeah. to get that so she was she's, she's done something in, incredibly effectively there I think yeah it's possible I haven't read many ghost stories because I might at heart just be a bit of a scaredy cat um, but thank, thanks for this trip through Ghostland and, oh, and how you came to write it and what it means to you is absolutely fascinating so I, I will be having a look at some of these stories and I hope others do as well thank you Ed, thanks very much next episode Ed discusses his reaction to the publication of Ghostland and how even with two books published writing the next book remains a learning process